0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So we are in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, and... We are going to start in chapter 2, verse 23. I'm going to start there, uh, and then I'll tell you where to go from there. So there's a few places we're going to jump to. We'll start here, then we'll hit a couple verses in uh, 3, and then a couple verses in 4, and then we'll we'll get into our, our study tonight. And so uh, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, it says this. It says that he, and this is speaking of Jesus, it says that he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. And then chapter 3, verse 1, it says, in those days, so in the days while Jesus was living in Nazareth, the days while he was growing up, the first 30 years of his life that we know very little about, though we know a few things, it says that in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, of Judea. Now skip down, if you would, to verse 13 of chapter 3. And it says that then cometh Jesus, so 30 years passed from the time of his uh, birth, 30 years old, it says that Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it or allow it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Order is more important than uh, (laughs) rank in the sense. He says, then he suffered him. And so Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him and lo, a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and it says then was jesus chapter 4 verse 1 led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil now if you would skip uh, please down to verse 11 chapter 4 and it says then the devil leaveth him And behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. So a test uh, ensues. Jesus passes the test. The devil then leaves. The angels come and minister. And then in verse 12 uh, and 13, our final verses, it says that now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison he departed, so he departs from Nazareth into Galilee, or I'm sorry, from Jordan to Galilee, and then verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, and those are the words that I want you to mark in your mind, it's the title of our message tonight, it's leaving Nazareth, it says, and leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zabulon and uh, Naphtali. It seems like in, in every generation of human history, there are a few people, and sometimes I guess it can skip a generation or two, but there are a few people that do something remarkable and that leave a mark upon humanity or upon the world in some way. And usually, you know, someone who, who, who invents something or someone who revolutionizes, uh, maybe an industry or changes culture, or maybe sometimes it's a political person, a uh, hero of some sort, maybe an artist, but, but, but they come in some way and, and they leave a mark. They, they do something, they become great in the eyes of humanity, but usually we don't recognize them until really they're at the apex, until the point where they make their greatest impact, until then they kind of live in somewhat of an obscurity. Oftentimes, we don't even recognize them until after they're gone. We don't appreciate what they contributed, maybe the art or the the, the things that they wrote down or something that they did. We don't even recognize how significant it was until after the person was gone. But when we do recognize them, we celebrate them. We celebrate them for their influence, for their uh, accomplishments. We recognize their talents and their abilities, sometimes even their personhood, the type of people that they were. But somewhere underneath all of what is visible, all of what is appreciated and what is seen, there is uh, underneath all of that, there is a combination of circumstances that converged in an invisible place to produce the things that we admire. the the oftentimes the, the things that we appreciate. That's only the tip of the iceberg. That's only the visible, but there's a whole world of things underneath of that that made them what they became. Now, there is no one who has impacted the human race more than Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that he was God. He had a little bit of an edge. But the mystery and, and kind of the thing that we we struggle with trying to figure out is that what he did, he did as a man. He removed himself of his deity and he lived really as an example. He wanted not to be something that, that was unreachable, but really to be an example. And there was no one that made a greater impact on humanity than Jesus himself. And so... As he did things as a man, what we recognize is that there was 30 years of Jesus' life that we really know very little about. The Bible doesn't record much about it. Now, what we do know about those 30 years, a couple of things, we knew that he grew up and he lived for the greater part or most of that time in this city called Nazareth. And I find it interesting that the name Nazareth, the word Nazareth, it actually means separated. You recall maybe in, in, if you've heard the Old Testament story of Samson, how Samson had upon him, he had this thing called the Nazarite vow. And the whole idea behind it is that you were separated. There was something that made you distinct or something that made you different. You were separate from the masses of the rest of humanity in the way that you did certain things. And, And Matthew points out that Jesus lived in Nazareth and that that was appointed by God that he would be from there. And I believe intentionally that for this 30 years there was a separation. That Jesus was living in this place of obscurity. We also know that in his early childhood that there was a little bit of instability they moved around some they went obviously down to Bethlehem for birth and then to Egypt for a season then back into Judea up into Nazareth and there was this this somewhat of a, 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 a instability really in the early years of his physical human life We also know that he was subject to a little bit of underclassmanship, if you would. They were poor, Mary and Joseph. We know that because when they brought the offering to the temple to dedicate Jesus, there was two options. There was the rich people, normal people option, and then there was the poor people option. You just had to bring a couple of birds. And that's what Mary and Joseph brought. They brought the couple of birds, and thus it reveals that they weren't well off You know, it was kind of a struggle for them in those early days. They probably didn't have much help from family, being that Mary's reputation was already kind of tarnished by this story that this child supposedly was immaculately conceived, Joseph probably ostracized somewhat from his family because he went through with the the marriage even though there was this controversy behind it. And so there was a struggle. There was an instability in their household. We also know that it was a large family. We see that Jesus had... About five siblings. They're listed later on in, in the story. And so you put all of this together and you can kind of get an idea of what at least the early part of Jesus' earthly life was like. It probably was somewhat challenging on the human physical level. Another thing that we know about the 30 years that Jesus lived in Nazareth is that we know that at the age of 12... Jesus was, for all intents and purposes, at least according to human standards, he was ready to go. He was ready to launch. You know how sometimes today you hear about someone who has adulting issues? They're living at home way too long, into their 30s, sometimes into their 40s. That wasn't Jesus. At the age of 12, he wanted to launch. They were in Jerusalem for a feast. Mary and Joseph packed up and went home. Jesus stayed behind. He wanted to start. When Mary and Joseph came to say, what on earth are you thinking? you know, He said to them, don't you know that I should be about my father's business? And there he was astounding the theologians and the doctors and the lawyers of his day with the wisdom that he had of God at age 12. So he was ready in the sense of that he had his degree, that he was competent, that he felt confident, and he wanted to go. He was ready to go. The only problem with that is that it wasn't time for him to go yet, and that it wasn't the will of the Father for his ministry to start yet. In God's mind, there was 18 more years of experience in Nazareth. In obscurity, in the shadows, in invisibility, 18 more years of things that we have no idea God was doing in him for whatever cause that it wouldn't be until the age of 30 that he would finally leave the place of separation and begin his earthly ministry. The time when he would be presented by the Father to the world. We don't know what it was like. We don't know what it felt like. What did it feel like for Jesus to be in that place knowing his purpose, feeling ready to go, but yet not being released yet in the will of God? We don't know what that feels like until you've been there. Have you been there? Have you ever been in a place where you feel like you're ready for something, but it isn't God's timing yet? Or the door isn't open yet? or it doesn't happen yet. At that point, you begin to maybe relate just a little bit to what it might have felt like for Jesus to have to feel that in the will of God at that period of his life. Only God knows why Jesus had to wait what was going on in his spirit, in his life, what God was doing in the physical man at this time, the spiritual man, the son of man, That he would have to wait until the age of 30. But there are two things, as we look at the text that we read here, there are two things that were realized at the end of this period of separation and before his presentation. There's two things that are said of Jesus that are absolutely true that happened after separation before presentation. And that happened when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan River. It says that he came up out of the water and straightway the spirit descended in the form of a dove and a voice was heard. Now, if God, the father speaks from heaven over your life, then the things that he is speaking over your life are true about your life. And he said two things. He said, this is my beloved son and in whom I am well pleased. Identity, this is my beloved son, and acceptance, in whom I am well pleased. These two things were spoken over the life of Jesus, and of anything else that was accomplished during those 30 years, one thing was that he came to the point where he realized fully who he was, and that he was accepted in the eyes of his father concerning the identity of jesus christ or the identity of the child of god the most recent published earnings report from ancestry.com you guys know those genealogy searches the online things in 2017 that's the last one that they published they made a billion dollars in profits a billion dollars in one year. Since 2012, they have three million paid subscribers. That means not just people that went on and surfed and searched and gleaned, but people that actually paid the hundred bucks to subscribe for the year to have access to the greater database. They've had a Billion searches per month averaged out over that time since their inception. A billion searches per month and 17 million people have downloaded their app. Uh, There was an article recently in The Guardian that said, uh, stated that statistically genealogy websites are the most frequently visited websites second only to porn sites worldwide. That, that 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 is this, the second most searched thing that people want to know where they're from. The average subscriber spends anywhere between $100, that's a base subscription, up to and into the tens of thousands of dollars searching and digging deeper to find out more about their past and their ancestries. And all of this is done in some attempt to for people to try to figure out who exactly they are. That's what people want to know. And, then, and what it reveals is that deep down inside the human psyche, even in mature adults, we have this internal sense that we don't know, that we have no idea who we really are. And what's more than that is that it's even true amongst the people of God, it's even true in the church. Now, when, when we're saved, I know when I was saved, the lights were turned on, and I know that something changed. But that doesn't mean that automatically on the second day, all of a sudden, every question was answered and every issue that I have was laid to rest and now I'm content and satisfied. We sing that song, don't we, that I am who you say I am? You know, and we sing that with such confidence. You know, like, I am who you say I am. But then somewhere inside we're going, but, but I don't know who I am. You know? <laughs> I really don't know. Like If I'm really honest, like, I'm still trying to kind of figure it out. You know, and I wish someone would kind of tell me, and that's why I'm spending so much money trying to figure this out. You know, it's true of most people that we really just don't know who we are we form somewhat of an identity that suits our survival and that is optimal for the environment that we have to operate in on a daily basis. And that's just what's true about most of us. So the question is, why is identity such a big issue and why is it so difficult for us to figure out? I believe that one reason is because who we really are deep down on the inside is something that is hidden from us at birth, We really just don't know. God doesn't write that somewhere where we can read it and really understand it. Uh, David said these words. It's in Psalm 139. And and he realized it. He knew he didn't know who he was. And so he kind of brings this whole thing to God. He wakes up one morning and he's like, I know I'm King David, but who's King David? And so he says, well, I better talk to God about this. And he says these words, a famous Psalm. He says, oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, it should go up on the screen, Psalm 139, verse 1. It says, you have searched me and you have known me, you know, my down sitting and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. You compass, that means surround my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Then he he, he gets to the point sort of in verse six when he says this, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. In other words, says, like, God, you know everything I'm thinking, you know every place I'm going, you know everything there is about me, but I don't. I don't understand what I do or what I think or why I think it or where I'm going. It's beyond my ability and my grasp to figure these things out. He comes to this conclusion. He actually says uh, in verse 15, he says that my substance, the, the, the inner part of me, what makes me who I am, was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. He says, your eyes did see my substance being yet unperfect or incomplete, and in your book, all my members, that's everything about my life, was written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. He says, God, you understood all the secrets of who I am before I was even fully developed in the womb. Now, here's his conclusion when he gets to the end in verse 23, his prayer concerning this realization. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And here's his prayer. And he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, he goes, I'm never going to be able to completely figure out who I am or why I am or what makes me tick or what you intended when you made me. But I know that you know completely who I am. And so my prayer to you, because it's beyond my figuring out, is that you would lead me into an understanding concerning who you are and even who I am. That you would lead me into this discovery of my own identity. And so David realized that it's hidden from us we don't know who we are from birth that's one of the reasons we have identity issues another reason we have identity issues is because we live in a world where who we are is defined by what we do We're, we we let me say it again we live in a world that defines who we are by what we do And so in a world, in this world, we tuck identities into neatly packaged labels, don't we? Are you an A personality or a B personality? Are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? What number are you on the Enneagram? I don't know if any of you have caught on to that, the Enneagram. I took the test. I'm not going to tell you what number I am, but you can guess. If you want to, you probably will get it wrong. Uh, most people do. You know, but, but we do this. We, we kind of like have labels on people. And so that person is artistic, or that person is, uh, has more of an engineering mind, or that person is a nerd, or, you know, and, and, and we, we, we label, we put labels on things, and that's kind of the world. And so what we've done is we've created like an index of identities or a catalog of identities or if you would a menu of identities and so we come into this world and we look at all the different options and we're kind of told pick something figure out who you are and then go with it here's the problem problem is the human soul is a lot more like a large pantry than it is like a menu And so it's not like I look inside and I go, okay, I'm spaghetti. No, it doesn't work like that. There's some some fine starch flour in there and a little bit of tapioca and a couple of bay leaves. And there's all this kind of stuff. I don't even know what it is. And you're telling me to take all of what's in this pantry and make something that I see out there on that menu. And sometimes the stuff in here doesn't jive well to create something that's on the index menu that's out there. And that's a problem for me because I can maybe make something with what I've got that looks like something out there, but it's not really what's out there because that's just not what's inside of me. And so now I have identity issues because I feel like I have to fit into one of the labels that's been provided for me, but I don't really have what it takes to be that because that's not who I am internally. And so I feel inadequate, I'm not good enough, or I'm unacceptable to people in some way, or I'm misunderstood, and it lends to this problem. Another reason why we have identity issues in this world is because who we are has been contaminated by original sin. When we were born, every one of us was born into this world fallen. And we inherited from our parents, grandparents, and way as far back as it goes all the way to Adam, intrinsic behaviors that were not designed by God that contaminate who we are now they are not who we are those are things that are in us because of sin because of original sin now I know because I've been alive long enough to see the family that I come from I know that I come from a long line of functional alcoholics substance abusers womanizers and people that struggle with mental illness now I know that that sounds like a very flattering heritage and inspires much confidence as you listen to me speak to you Okay. But if you were to look at what you've come from, you would realize that you have a whole list of issues as well that that are in you from birth. And here's what happens, is that we can begin to confuse those things that tarnish our true self with things that are actually intrinsically created by God. And we can mistakenly identify ourselves as things that aren't really a part of us. And so it confuses, and I don't have the software necessary to really sift and sort through what's what and know what to do with what, or at least it takes me a long time to do that. Now, put all these things together. We don't know who we are from birth. That's hidden from us. We are defined by what we do, and we're contaminated by original sin. The outcome of that, you put it together, is that it is actually impossible for me to really know who I am. And thus... The result is an endless quest to try to figure it out. I've got to dig into my past. I've got to look at my ancestry. I've got to go under hypnosis. I've got to see a therapist. And I'm just going to dig and dig and dig and dig and try to figure it out. Because I feel like if I just know who I am, then that will help me somehow in my life. Well, here's the fact of the matter is that only the God who made you can inform your identity. And that's why David said, Lord, it's too big for me. You lead me into an understanding of who I am. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 Verse 20, he says great words. He says, uh, he says, nay, but, oh man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me thus? I, I think that's the wrong question. I, I mean, I do that. I'm like, Lord, why did you make me this way? You know, and I, I say that, but, but really the right question is not why have you made me thus, but what have you made me thus? Because, Lord, I really am not sure if I understand it. Now, God is the one only that can reveal to us who we are because he's the only one that really understands and he's the one that made us. And here's an issue, is that it doesn't happen in a moment. Don't you wish that it did? Don't you wish that in one minute, God would just be like, let me just flick a light switch and you're like, yeah, I get it. I understand me, finally. You know, it doesn't work like that. But when we understand That it's a process. When we understand it's something that takes a little bit of time, it takes a little bit of relationship, it takes a little bit of walking with God, it takes a little bit of discovery, it takes a little bit of revelation, it takes a little bit of failure and a little bit of success, it takes some time, then we begin to understand maybe why Nazareth is necessary. Maybe we start to understand why there's a season that God has prescribed That we feel like, God, I'm just sitting here waiting for something to happen. And and all of me feels ready for it, even though maybe I'm not exactly sure what it is. But I'm, I want to, but I'm, why, Lord, I know, what? It's Nazareth. separated. There's a season. You're growing. You're learning. Because God is doing things in your life right now that are helping you to understand that. One name that has kind of resurfaced as of late, a blast from the past for every single one of us here, is the name Fred Rogers. that name resonate with any of you? Beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a good feeling to know you're alive, you know. And about 20 years after his death now, people are starting finally to realize, like, wow, that guy was pretty cool for as nerdy as he was, you know, Mr. Rogers with the zipper and the shoes and the whole thing, you know. But when you start to really look at his story, and I mean, he touched more lives than really most people. I mean, what he did and what he accomplished in his lifetime. But when you go back and you look at where he came from, you see that he was very lonely as a child. He suffered in that loneliness. He was also bullied for a lot of his early life. He lived a lot of it in isolation. He suffered a lot of pain. There was a lot of things that went on. But somewhere in all of that, he also had this incredible sensitivity and an ability to feel. He was very in touch with the things that he was feeling in the middle of his suffering. And what he did is he realized that God had given to him that ability so that he would know how to deal with other people that were in similar circumstances. And so the pain that he felt being bullied and being in isolation and the things that helped him along the way and the things that he experienced early in his career, he translated all of that into a way that he could show love to people and express acceptance and show them their value. And thus his life made a huge impact. But he didn't film really the first episode of Mr. Rogers until he was 39 years old that means that there was a long nazareth where he was discovering who he was so that he could come to the point where he could then do something that would make an impact on people and thus here's the point is that god reveals as we walk with him who we are so that he can then connect with our life and use us in a way that makes an impact and so I must let God inform my identity. Now, the other half of that, which can be equally as hard, is that I have to embrace my identity. Does anybody else struggle with that? It's like, I don't want to be who I am. Like, if I really could look at the menu and choose, like, I was told growing up, you can be whatever you want. Did you know that's a lie? You can't be whatever you want. I, no matter how much I ever want to be, like, a ballerina dancer... It's just not going to happen. That's I've searched this pantry. It's not there. There's a lot of things that I want to be. I'm never going to be. I'm never going to be cool. I wish I was. I'm never going to be a strong person, you know, the one that comes in the room and just knows how to command it. I wish I was, but I'm just not. That's not in me. I'm not cool like that. I want to be high capacity, one of those people that can do 50 things well. You know, you know who they are. Don't they drive you? They drive me crazy because I'm just jealous. You know that they can do that, and I want to be funny. I want to be able to like be witty and humorous and crack jokes that I haven't planned and thought of for four years before I, you know, whatever or heard from someone else. There's a lot of things that I want to be. They're just not in there. You can't. And so I have to embrace who God made me as he reveals it to me, and that sometimes can be equally as hard as discovering what that is. Because sometimes God's like, let me show you who you are, and I'm like, no, I don't want to see that. Lord, if it doesn't, if it doesn't translate into like MVP of something, then just show me something else. Give me showcase number two, you know. But we have to embrace it. The other side of what was spoken over Jesus was not just his identity, this is my beloved son, but then secondarily... There was acceptance. He said, in whom I am well pleased. And you know what is remarkable about that statement? is not what he said... And it's really not even who he said it to, because, I mean, when you think about it, it's Jesus, right? Of course, God is pleased with Jesus, but remember, he was a man at this point. That's why, by the way, remember when John the Baptist said, why are you coming to be baptized by me? I should, you should be baptizing me. Why are you doing this? And Jesus said, we have to do this because of process. We have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus knew that he outranked john john knew that jesus outranked john but what jesus was saying is that listen i have to do everything i do as a man because i'm going to call people to follow me and i can't ask them to follow me somewhere that i haven't been and so i have to go through everything that my followers are going to go through and so that makes jesus very human in this experience very relatable And so what is remarkable about the father saying my son in whom I am well pleased is not what he said or when he said it. I'm sorry, who he said it to. It's when he said it. Because really, when did he say this to Jesus? It was before he did anything. He accepted him before he was even tested because he won't be tested until chapter four. That's when the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. The father speaks acceptance over the son before he does one act of service. Before he raises the dead, heals a leper, speaks the good news to the poor, sets a captive free. Before he calls a person to follow him in ministry, before there's a following. Before he rebukes the religious rulers and turns over a table. Before anything is done, the father has already spoken acceptance over the son. And that is hugely critical to understand. The timing of it. Because with God, acceptance is not based upon outward conditions. It's not based upon social conditions. It's not based upon how well we do on the test. How well we measure up against others. It's not about what we've done, what we're doing, or what we've accomplished. God front loads acceptance upon those whom he's called. Those that belong to his son, God has front-loaded and spoken acceptance over their life. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says this. It says that God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And here's the point is that the acceptance of God over our lives is something that is front-loaded from the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. It is not dependent upon how well we do on the test or what happens after that point. God loves us because we are born again in Christ, and therefore we are accepted by him. And that is so important to understand. There are many that get stuck. Really, they get stuck in Nazareth, maybe a little bit way too long. And part of the reason for that is because they refuse to believe that they're accepted. They feel like they have to earn their way into it, or somehow it was extended to them on credit, but now they have to pay it back with their works. But it doesn't work that way. With God, we are completely accepted from the very beginning. And you know, sometimes it takes a little while for us to realize that. It takes a little while for us to embrace that. It takes a while for us to feel it. Sometimes we have to get so tired of trying that we quit long enough to know that God accepted us even though we're failing. I know that was my story. I tried so hard and so long out of the gate to earn what God had already spoken over my life that it wasn't until I got so tired that I couldn't hold it up anymore that I realized, wait a minute, God, you love me even, even if I didn't do all this? Yeah, that's how it works. I heard the story of, of a young man. And um, he this is going back a few years, but he was like big in, in the record industry and he was big with the Beatles. And he just kind of like would just abound at everything he did. He was uneducated, but he would just know how to just get things done. And he was just this personality that people love to be around. And, and one day someone asked him his story. They said, what is it about you? How can you be so confident and so bold and so... Uh, so able, like, what is it about you? And he said, he goes, you know, he goes, I think it's this. He said, when I was a kid, he said, whenever I walked into my house or walked into a room where my dad was, he said, my dad would always say that the room just got better because you're in it. He said, he said it all the time. He just said, oh, the room just got better because you're in it. And he goes, you know what? He goes, I just believed him. He goes, I don't know why, but he goes, I, I just believed him. And, and it did something in me. It inspired me. It, ma- it empowered me. It, it made me know that I can, that, that the, maybe the room really is better. Maybe the world really is better because I'm in it. Listen, here's what acceptance does, and especially when that acceptance comes from God. Acceptance makes you realize That the world is better because you're in it. That God is happy in a room when you walk into it. That he isn't just saying, I'm tolerating you. This is my beloved daughter in whom I tolerate because she said the prayer. But really, there's a few things that we need to work out to bring it to real... No, 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 no. He looks and he says, accept it. And when a person realizes who they are in him and that they are accepted by him, that changes everything. That's what Jesus had. After his separation, which the purpose of is to bring to that place where you realize who you really are, and that you are accepted and loved by God confidently, before separation and before presentation, you must know who you are in him and that you are accepted by him. And do you know what happens then? Well, kind of just like Jesus. Jesus, after that, he, he really could do the impossible. I mean, how many times did people say of Jesus that no one's ever done this before? No one's, ever, no one's ever spoken like this man has done before. No one has ever done the kind of works that this man has done before. There's never been anyone like him before. Jesus is walking on water. Peter's like, is that, is that even possible? No one's ever done that before. See, Jesus didn't order off the menu. He didn't say, well, I could be like the scholars. I could be like a light. No, no, Jesus was like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the son of God. I belong to the Father. Water? He made water. He made me. Why, why not? He walks on water. Never done that before. Jesus would raise the dead. We've never seen this before. Yeah. What, 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 why is that a restriction? It's Jesus. He says he did things that were impossible. He not only did the impossible, but he lived the impractical. The quiet voice of the Father was louder to him than the audible voices of the crowds. And so when people would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you need to get into the village right now because there's thousands of people waiting to hear you speak. He could look up and he'd say, not today. I'm not going to the village. We're going to go to another village where no one's ever heard of me, and we're going to talk to two people or one person, and we're going to see what happens when we get there. Look, like, are you crazy? This is why you're here. There's thousands of them. Jesus like, no, it's not, what, it's not what I'm doing today. It's not what the Father wants of me today. It might be what you want of me today, but it's not what the Father wants of me today. Jesus, you can't eat with those people. Do you realize what that's going to do to your reputation? Those are tax collectors. Those are hookers. The, the bad kind, not prostitutes, hookers. You can't eat with them. Jesus said, I, I don't care what you say I can't do. Because the still small voice of, of, of who I am, I belong to. Who I belong to. And then I'm accepted by him. That is speaking louder to me. I hear that voice because that's who I am. He not only lived the impractical, but he gave the improbable he would sit around the table with those whom he called and he would humble himself and nakedly wash their feet and silence in the room as the son of god washed the dirty feet of fallen men and peter would say lord you can't do this like you're not going to wash my feet and jesus would look up at him and say no let me tell you something peter and they would have the interaction "Why, why are you doing this Why are you talking to her? Why are you healing them? Why would you extend yourself to the last and the least? That's not what people do. Not great people. Not prophets. Not the Son of God. Not only that, but he also became unstoppable. The Son of Man, the Son of God, loved and embraced by the Father, not even death, not even the grave could hold him back. Death hold all men. Two things assured, death and taxes, right? Now, when you belong to God, see, here's the point, is that when you know who you are in him, and when you know that you're accepted by him, nothing stops you. The same things that were spoken over Jesus are spoken over each that follow. This is my beloved son. This is your identity. You are accepted by me. Sometimes I I read some of the things in the Bible and they they puzzle me. You know, remember when David lied? Remember when he lied and 80 priests got killed because David lied? Sometimes I look at that and I go, how did he live another day? Because I'm thinking that if I did something, I told a lie, and 80 of God's priests get killed because of my lie. I'm done. Resignation. I'm handing it in. I'm just going to put my tool belt back on. I'm finished. But not David. He's like, no, I'm going to keep going. A little while later, he backslid. He led his men into some foolish battles. He completely just kind of gave up on God and took things all into his own hands. And the byproduct of that in this little village called Ziklag, all of his men's wives and children were taken, kidnapped as slaves and all their stuff was burned. And all the men looked at David and said, oh, you are so dead. We're going to kill you. And, and, and I would be like, oh, yes, just do it. Do it quickly. Make sure you hit the big nerve or make sure the bullet goes in the right place. Like, just don't miss. Please, I'm done. I, I did this. It's my fault. But not David. It says he encouraged himself in the Lord and he says, all right, God, you want me to go get these things? Let's do it. He said, come on, guys, let's go. And sometimes I look at that and I go, how did he do that? Because I couldn't do that. I would just be like, this is punishment. I'm done. I'm finished. Do you know how he did it? Because he knew He was accepted. He knew who he was in God and he knew that God wasn't finished with him even if he made a mistake. And so he was able to get up in it and keep going and ultimately come to the place that God had ultimately designed for him. Now, I've got to show you this. You can't miss this. If you do, you miss the whole message completely. Nothing that Jesus did from this point And after that is recorded in the Gospels, nothing that he did from the time he came out of that water, did he ever do independent of his father? He did it in communion with him. What happens right after Jesus is baptized? He's tested, right? It says that the spirit led him up into the wilderness to be tested by the devil for 40 days. And I always read that, and I'm like, okay, well, here's this big test now that Jesus is going to take to see if he can actually withstand against sin. But if you look at what the devil tested Jesus with, he didn't test him with sins. He didn't say, Jesus, you want a beer? He didn't say, Jesus, here's some women over here in the village, and you look a little stressed out, and, you know, you're not married, you could... He didn't... There was none of that. Do you know what he said? He said, if... You are the son of God. Oh, if you're the son of God, oh, your identity, who you are in him, my beloved son. If you are, if you are really the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now, here was what the devil was trying to get Jesus to do. He was trying to get Jesus to act independent of his father he knew at this time it's not his will for me to eat food and so for me to use that power apart from his direction and will to do something for myself that would be independence it would be a compromise to who he says i am i belong to him that was the test now how do i know that because in just a few short months jesus is going to create enough bread out of thin air to feed a multitude of 5,000 people which means there was nothing wrong with Jesus using his ability to make bread out of nothing. The issue was, will you act independent of God? If you're the son of God, then throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and everyone will see that you're amazing and they'll glorify you in this whole thing. No, no, Jesus is not. I don't serve that audience. My acceptance doesn't come from what people think of me. My acceptance comes from what my father says about me. See, what's at stake here is not if Jesus can survive a fall from the pinnacle of the temple. He's going to survive a death and rise up out of the grave. What's at stake is will he operate independent of the Father in who God says he is and where his help or his acceptance comes from. If you bow down and worship me, then all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. I'll give them to you. I have the authority to do it. Jesus looked look at him and say, guess what? All the kingdoms and authority of the world is going to come. But I'm not going to do it independent of my Father. See, the testing that Jesus went through was not about, is he going to drink a beer? Or is he going to succumb to sin in some way? The issue is, will you live independent of communion with the Father? Will you compromise who you were made to be? for the sake of doing what you want. Do you realize that's the whole thing of what happened in the Garden of Eden? When God said there's two trees, and he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the the temptation was not to eat it or, or whatever. The temptation was, you don't need God. You can do this by yourself. It's desirous to make one wise. You'll know good and evil. You don't need to depend on God. You can do it. You can do it. You do it. Take it into your own hands. And you know what's amazing? is that ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit, from that point on, they were separated from God, and that's when the identity issue started. From that moment, all of mankind is going, why am I like this? Why am I doing this? Why do I think this way? Why don't I fit? What everything else is telling me, what's wrong? Ancestry, psychology, therapy, hypnosis, He didn't do anything independent of God. He would do even greater things. But it begins, it develops, and it finishes in relationship to the Father. And listen, church, that's what's happening in Nazareth. That's why the season of separation. Because it's there. It's in the isolation. It's in the time of waiting. It's there in Nazareth that we're discovering who we are in him. It's in Nazareth that we're learning, that we're accepted by him, even if it doesn't make sense to me intellectually. It's in Nazareth that he is sifting through. This is part of the fall. This is part of what I've made. That's what's happening in Nazareth. Amazing things happen in Nazareth, the place of separation. You know what it says in Genesis chapter 49, verse 26, concerning Joseph? Remember Old Testament Joseph? It says this, it says, can you put it up there? It says that the blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors. Those are my, my, my fathers unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. It says that they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate or separated from his brothers. It was in Nazareth, the place of separation where Joseph became the man that he became. Moses spent time in Nazareth, not, not literally Nazareth, but he spent 40 years in the desert separated unto the will of God to develop in him what he was to become that he might know who God was and know who he was in God. David spent time separated, in isolation, not knowing what would become of him. And in that place, he was learning who God was, who he was in God, learning the acceptance of the Father to prepare him for the time when he would come out of Nazareth. Paul spent time in the desert. Listen, every single one of God's people will grow up in Nazareth, in the place of separation. I was talking about this with my wife, and she just she didn't even wait for me to finish this sentence. She said it was early motherhood for me. She said it was in those days of early motherhood, the sleeplessness of it, the difficulty, the adjustment, the stretching, the dying, the crucifixion of it. She said, it was in that place that I learned who he was. It was God and you only. And I believe everything that you say. And I need nothing more than you. But it was in Nazareth where she learned it. I have a daughter who's going to turn 15 tomorrow. And I don't know anything more Nazareth than 15. (laughs) Because there's nothing to look forward to when you turn 15. You're watching every one of your friends get their license and get jobs and make money and do fun things. And you're sitting there 15. You can do nothing. It's Nazareth. I don't know what Nazareth is for you. But amazing things happen in Nazareth because it's there that God reveals who we are. He takes this pantry that we don't even understand and he begins to sift through it and turn us into what it is that he created us to be. And in the process of all of that, while we fall on our face and we can't figure it out and we're frustrated and we want to quit, it's in that place that we realize, God, that you you love me as messed up as I am, don't you? That you're for me, even though I'm a failure. And you're not going to let me fail, are you? And we come to that place where we know who we are. And we know that he loves us. Do you know where Jesus went when he left Nazareth? It says that he came to Capernaum. It says that in chapter 4, verse 13. It says that he left Nazareth and he came to Capernaum. Do you know what Capernaum means? It means the city of the comforter. Do you know who the comforter is? Jesus said that I will pray the father and he will send you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The comforter is the indwelling, everlasting presence of God with you wherever you are. It's the power of the spirit, the person of the spirit with you constantly. See, Nazareth is where I learn identity. It's where I embrace acceptance I come out and I go to Capernaum, the place where I'm walking with him. I'm moving with him. Some of you tonight, you're in a place where you're in Nazareth and you just want out. You're the 12-year-old Jesus. I'm ready. I need it. I gotta go. Listen, embrace it. Embrace Nazareth. Don't run from it. I learned something a long time ago in this Christian life. There's a mystery. And that is the way out of anything once you're a Christian, is to embrace the thing that you're trying to get away from. Embrace it. Don't run from it. Run toward it. Love the thing that you hate. Because God's going to do something in that place or in that situation that you will look back and say, that was priceless. I would not become who I am without it. And you know what that is, really? It's part of baptism. You think about it. Jesus, he was baptized. Baptism is a death. It's a dying baptism is a surrender it's a saying that I am no longer my own I'm letting go of who I wish I was where I wish I was the circumstances I wish were true about my life I'm letting go of all of it out of trust and loving belief that God you know what you're doing in my life that's what it means to embrace Nazareth it's just God I trust you with my entire life embrace Nazareth You'll find that eventually you get to leave Nazareth because Nazareth isn't forever. As we close tonight, I just want to say to you that if you're here and in some way God is speaking to you, you, you realize that there's something inside of you that he's doing in you, and you just feel like you just want to respond in some way, would I just ask you to lift your hand and, and would we pray together? Could I pray for you in this moment that God would maybe help you to embrace help you to realize, help you to trust him in some way. Father, I look around the room right now and I see hands in in the dimness of the lighting and I, I know that only you know, Lord, what it is that each of us need. But right now, Lord, with our hands lifted toward heaven, we want to declare trust and faith in who you are, in your process, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have confidence, Lord, in Jesus and what he's done for us and who you are to us. So Lord I pray that you would help each one and I pray for any Lord that tonight there needs to be a surrendering and a dying that you would help it happen and I pray Lord if there's anyone here tonight that it's time to come out of Nazareth that you would empower that you would fill oh Lord that your love that your grace that your person would overwhelm that we would just have a sense of knowing who we are and so we ask you Lord to do this tonight you can put your hands down. Maybe you're here tonight, and you say, "I don't, I don't really even know if I know God. I don't know if I really even know what you're talking about, to be honest." But there's something crazy going on in my heart right now. Do you know that one week ago from tonight, New York State passed a law that made it uh, um, legal for any adopted child to have access to their original birth certificate? And and the reason that's significant is because it allows them to know who their birth parents were and so that became law signed into law last uh, wednesday at 12 o'clock a.m and at 12.01 a.m the databases were clogged they were jammed because people were online trying to access these documents because they just wanted to know And I read one article and one testimony is that one person, they they logged on at 1201. They had the document by 1225 and they didn't sleep for the rest of the night because they just were wondering, what are they like? How am I going to find them? Are they going to accept me? This whole thing. Here's what you need to understand, you that don't know God here tonight. It's that through the person of his son, Jesus, he has made a way for your sin to be so completely washed away and your heart to be so completely linked in communion with him, that if you would call on him and say, Jesus, I believe in you, and I receive what you did, and I want to live my life for you, that because of the cross, what was signed into heavenly law is that you can know God in a personal way. And he can begin to reveal in your life, not just who you are, but who he is, and that communion can begin. It's something that God has done. He's made the way for you. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and ask him, receive what he has given, just take it like a gift by faith, invisibly, that you will be saved. And so right now, if you're here, in fact, I want all of us to just pray this prayer together, even if you've prayed it before, so that nobody feels like they're praying alone if they're praying it for the first time. But would you just pray this with me? Lord God, I believe that you died and rose for me, that you love me, and that you're willing to save me. And I want to be saved. I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I pray that you'd come inside. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I want to know who you made me to be. And I want to be in your heaven. Would you accept me? Would you fill me with your spirit? Would you take my life? And would you lead me in your purpose? I believe in you. And I trust you with my salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer right now for the very first time, would you just have the courage to shoot your hand up in the air and be known that you just said, I want Jesus in my life. I see some hands. Would you guys just praise the Lord for those? And let's stand together and sing this last worship song as we close the service. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast.